It's a great pleasure to introduce Michael Eisenstadt, who is the Kahn Fellow and Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policies Military and Security Studies Program, a specialist in Persian Gulf and Arab-Israeli security affairs. He's published widely on irregular and conventional warfare, as well as nuclear weapons proliferation in the Middle East. Prior to joining the Institute in 1989, Michael worked as a military analyst with the U.S. government. He served for 26 years as an officer in the U.S. Army Reserve before retiring in 2010. His military service included active duty stints in Iraq with U.S. Forces Iraq Headquarters and the Human Terrain System Assessment Team in Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Jordan with the U.S. Security Coordinator for Israel and the Palestinian Authority at U.S. Central Command Headquarters and Joint Staff during Operation Enduring Freedom and the planning for Operation Iraqi Freedom, which is, I believe, the time in which I was privileged to be his colleague for, for a short period. Uh, without further ado, so he has more time to talk, let me... Uh, ask you to join me in welcoming Michael Eisenstadt. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you very much for the invitation and for the warm welcome. It's great to be here this evening. Um, I'm going to be giving a, a talk um, that's based on a, a monograph that I co-authored with Ambassador Jim Jeffrey at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy titled, and if you'll forgive me for, for the plug here, uh, U.S. Military Engagement in the Broader Middle East. Um, Jim wrote the first section and I wrote the second section. My section was titled, the same title as uh, tonight's talk, Winning Battles, Losing Wars, Rethinking U.S. Strategy in the Middle East. Now, the reason that we wrote this monograph is that we wanted to make the case for continued U.S. Uh, military engagement in the region. Um, basically, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, one of the things we said was that um, the U.S. still has vital interests in the region, um, even though we are, um, no longer dependent on Middle East oil like we used to. Our allies are, and our, our economy depends on them. Um, the region is still of concern with regard to proliferation, and I think most importantly, it's a major exporter of violent extremism and terrorism. And we've learned that what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. And conversely, if you don't visit the Middle East, it will visit you. So we feel that um, because we still have vital interests, because the problems of the region um, are, are bound to uh, flow out of the region, we still need to ma uh, maintain some kind of uh, military role there. The challenge is, I mean, as a result of events since 9-11, it's very clear that our military performance in that part of the world has been to, um, I put it delicately, has been suboptimal. We've made uh, a number of major geopolitical um, mistakes that we're still paying for. Um, and I'm not sure we've really learned the lessons of the past uh, 16 or so years. So we wanted to write this piece in order to take a look at um, what went wrong, what did we do right, but where do we need to focus since we are, at least from our point of view, um, doomed to, or, or at least our interests require that we remain engaged in this part of the world, how can we do it better if we are to remain uh, engaged militarily? I guess I would summarize my argument by um, paraphrasing the famous quote by Sun Tzu. 
If you know yourself and know the enemy, you need not fear the result of 100 battles. And I think we have failed in both areas. So what I'm going to start off with is the failures of self-knowledge. Um, and, and, and there are many, and, and I'm not even beginning to kind of touch uh, on um, many of these failures. I'll, I'll give what I think are the most important ones. I mean, Rob mentioned, uh, Bob mentioned before, um, you know, we worked together at OSD, but I had previously been at CENTCOM uh, headquarters during the planning for the war in Iraq. And I'll have to say, um, the, you know, both at, at the time and, and certainly with the benefit of hindsight, it became very clear to me how little we understood ourselves and our own limitations and the, the blinders that we have and our inability to understand uh, the region, which to be fair, I mean, especially in the case of Iraq, was, it was a hard target because it was a closed society. There were a lot of things going on below the surface that we didn't understand and couldn't even see. Um, and, and, and to be fair, many people in the region you know, people always say, as I'm a Middle East Air, Air Specialist by training, you have to listen to the people of the region, which I think we absolutely have to do. Anybody who's an Air Specialist worth his or her salt has to listen to the people of the region. But they are also prone to the same kind of uh, foibles and uh, blinders that we often are, or that we have shown that we are uh, vulnerable to. Um, and so we made, a, we made a lot of mistakes. So let me just start off with what I consider to be the main failures of self-knowledge. First of all, and, and part of it has to do with who we are as Americans and the kind of a, a, you know, some uniquely American perspectives and ways of looking at the world. And the first is we have, as Americans, Americans have an ingrained tendency to project our values on our adversaries and most importantly to believe that every problem has a solution. And I call this you know, solutionism, which is a term that's been used in other contexts, but I put it in the policy context, especially with the Middle East, our efforts to solve the Arab-Israeli conflict, to remake Iraq and Afghanistan in our own image. And I think part of it is because we live in a society that is relatively well-regulated. We have mechanisms. I mean, democracy in many ways is a conflict regulation mechanism. And we have, at least until recently, have had a, we've been, we've, we've been a, in that regard, a pretty successful society. And because we have a well-regulated society where we are able to solve problems, you can, you can go to court, you could sue someone, you could seek arbitration, um, political parties can uh, seek uh, to uh, resolve their differences. We kind of assume that this is a, a, a norm that can be um, um, implemented everywhere. And in principle, maybe, maybe that is something which all human beings can aspire to, and, and someday, um, live in accordance with those, that ethos. But in the Middle East, we, we see a region that is plagued by intractable conflicts. And we've uh, sometimes ignored that and at our own peril. Now, this tendency to, um, uh, this preference for solutionism is especially problematic when you're dealing with insurgencies and dispersed distributed terrorist networks, which are, by their very nature, very resilient. And, you're and when you're dealing with governments whose zero-sum, winner-take-all form of governance or style of governance and scorched-earth way of war in dealing with opposition groups, um, which is actually an extension of their form of governance. I mean, the way they fight their wars is really an extension in many ways of the way they govern, which is kind of, you know, zero-sum, winner-takes-all approach. This way of governance, a way of war, often replicates the very problems they are trying to resolve. So, and, and, and this is a problem which I'll, I'll discuss a little more in a moment. Secondly, as Americans, 
we worship at the altar of technology. We all have our you know, iPhones and, and we always, we, you know, in our approach to solutionism, we often tend to rely on uh, technology as an enabler. Um, and you know, all around town, there's, there's, I can't even count how many events there are at think tanks in various places about the, the DOD's third offset strategy, um, which is important. Technological advantages are important in warfare. No, no argument. But I think the focus on technology has come at the expense of, uh, or has resulted in an underdeveloped kind of uh, geopolitical instinct. And that there, I, I, I find very few American politicians um, or foreign policy specialists who really have a good kind of geopolitical feel. Um, and you know, you have the people like Henry Kissinger and Richard Haas, who I think are both excellent. But I think this is, especially among our political class, this is uh, geopolitical kind of savvy and instinct is something which is found wanting. And I'll, I'll discuss this a little more in a moment. And as a result, in the Middle East, we've made geopolitical mistakes. And, and let me just say, when you make a geopolitical mistake, its impact is often very broad and very deep. Um, what we did in Iraq um, and the mistakes we made there contributed to the, um, the, the emergence of what we're seeing now, which is a, a regional kind of struggle. And it was already, it was there, it was nascent, but we exacerbated some of the pre-existing problems with regard to sectarianism and the like. Um, and now we have this um, regional-wide struggle between um, Iran and its proxies and Saudi Arabia and, and its proxies and, and the Emiratis and also the Qataris are involved. Um, and and, and we've tried, we often try to use tactical virtuosity and high-tech, our high-tech advantage to work our way out of the problems we've gotten ourselves into because of our geopolitical um, uh, mistakes. So, you know, I think we're overdeveloped in, when it comes to our technological prowess, but I think our geopolitical uh, skills are, are, have been found wanting in the Middle East and probably elsewhere. Um, and I'll give you an example, like, you know, whether it be our call for elections in Gaza in 2006 when the Israelis and the Palestinian Authority said this is not the time, and it happened, Hamas won the elections, it eventually resulted in the Hamas takeover in Gaza. So what do we do? We help the Israelis develop uh, the Iron Dome, the Iron Dome system and military technologies to deal with the problem. And what you, what you have as a result is three wars, uh, three very very destructive and painful wars. Uh, as a result, uh, um, in Syria, our inaction since 2011 has had consequences for the region and for Europe, and I would even argue for the United States and for our politics, which are very far-reaching. Um, and likewise, in Iraq, uh, our inaction after uh, 2011 um, with the return of AQI in the form of Al-Qaeda in Iraq in the form of Islamic State also had tremendous consequences for Iraq, Syria, and then the spread of Islamic State to Libya, um, Yemen, and elsewhere in the region. Third, the US has a stunted conception of warfare um, that um, is defined by several uh, factors. First of all, a tendency towards binary thinking in terms of war or peace, regular versus irregular conflict, or victory or defeat. And we have, as Americans, we often have trouble grappling with ambiguous circumstances and outcomes, or kind of dealing on multiple tracks. In the Middle East, everybody's got, everybody's got 
a two or three track game they're playing and they're operating on several tracks and sometimes they're mutually uh, incompatible or, or apparently contradictory. We're very binary, you know, and we saw this in the negotiations with Iran. If we're trying to seek a breakthrough with, in a nuclear deal with Iran, we've got to be careful with what we do in Syria, lest we uh, under, undercut, you know, by supporting the opposition against Assad, uh, we might undercut uh, the, the, the potential for a nuclear agreement. While Iran was playing, you know, at the same time, you know, the, a two-track two game at least with us, while negotiating seeking advantage in Syria and elsewhere in the region. So, we, you know, this ends up, you know, hobbling us uh, by uh, refusing uh, or, or our inability to think uh, and, and play, you know, kind of multiple games at the same time because we're very binary in approach. Um, we also saw this um, in President Obama's statement of um, our military options in Syria. And basically, he just, it, he basically said it's either you go in with 160,000 boots on the ground or basically, you do very little. You try to support the opposition, but in a, in a small, limited way. Um, and getting back to the whole solutionism theme I mentioned before, and I'll quote him here, and thanks to uh, Kendall, my uh, RA, for finding this for me today. Um, I'll quote, this is from uh, the president in April 2016, although he said it many times in the years before. In order, in order for us to solve the long-term problems in Syria, a military solution alone is not going to bring that about. Now, first of all, I would just say, you know, we have to acknowledge maybe this problem isn't solvable, but we have interest there that we need to, to tend to. And why not engage by supporting the opposition? I, and I, I, I did not want us to be involved directly, but support the opposition um, to see what kind of options it creates. Maybe it would be a disaster, or maybe it not enables us to put pressure on the Assad regime to bring about a diplomatic settlement. But the bottom line is we had vital interest there that I, I think required our involvement. Um, we weren't gonna solve the problem, but that doesn't mean you don't get involved, okay? Again, because we had vital interests. And we saw, we've seen what's happened with the refugee crisis, how that's affected the politics of Europe. And if right-leaning parties in Europe come to power that are, you know, these parties by and large see Putin as a more natural ally than the United States. Although under, under you know, an undercurrent president, maybe that will change, we'll see. Um, but again, not being able to solve the problem doesn't mean we shouldn't get involved, but again, there's, there's different ways of getting involved that don't involve either all in or not in at all. And so, but I, but I think I understand the, why the president didn't want to get involved, but I, I, I think we played a, a high, high price for that. We also have a general preference for brute strength and overwhelming force rather than ambiguity, guile, and indirection in, in, our, in our ways of doing things. Things. And that goes back in a way to the Weinberger and Powell doctrines, kind of if you're going to go in, go in to win. Um, you know, President, uh, well, candidate Trump, now President Trump, you know, when talking about ISIS, he, he talked about bombing the hell out of them. Um, and I'll touch on this in a moment, but sometimes more force is not better. Actually, sometimes more is less, and I'll explain why in a moment. But, you know, again, going in big is not the only way to do things. And there are sometimes, you know, some of our adversaries, instead of, you know, we always, as Americans, and this was embedded in our, our military doctrine, we always talked about decisive battle, because that's the clause of Vizian tradition. You seek on, in phase three decisive operations, now we call it, I think, uh, dominate. Um, that's one way of doing it, but sometimes our adversaries, instead of seeking rapid decision, they protract conflict over time. 
in order to seek incremental gains through attrition and wearing out the enemy and outlasting them. Now that's for our form of government, that's, yeah, of course, our form of government really doesn't allow that because we have elections every four years and really every, a president only has two and a half years before he has to start campaigning again if he wants to run again. And if he doesn't have results to show after two and a half years for uh, a campaign, it's very easy for his adversaries to um, claim that the campaign is not working. So our form of government doesn't allow us to very often play the long game. But there are other ways sometimes of, of seeking victory, um, and our former government forces us down a certain path in how we use the military instrument, which is not always the best one. And also, by the way, with regard to um, seeking decisive results and rapid, rapid uh, outcomes, you know, even though since 9-11 we've been saying this is a generational struggle, this is, this is a, a long war, what did we do in Iraq and, uh, and Afghanistan? We did surges, it's 12 to 18 month sur surges. So while we're talking about long wars, we, we, we try to turn them around quickly. Um, because it, so again, there's this contradiction in, in how, in our way of war and how we, how we think about things. We also have a way of, and this is not original on my part, I'll, I'll, I'll um, give credit to Antonio Echevarria, uh, who's a professor at the Army War College, he's a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel, um, I'm not sure if he coined this exactly, but, uh, but he's written about this uh, and, and his work is really worth reading. We, we have a, a way of battle rather than a way of war in that um, we tend to focus on seeking battlefield victory and as a result, we're not very good at transforming military victories to sustainable political outcomes. Now part of it again in the Middle East is the way we think about warfare and part of it is the operational environment and I'll explain a little bit more in a minute. But when you think of how President Obama defined our goals, I think it was in September 10th, 2014, when he defined the, war, the goals of the war, he said, our goal is to degrade and ultimately destroy Islamic State. Um, and these terms, again, are terms that make sense if you're thinking about, you know, kind of battlefield victory. But it doesn't get to the whole issue of the ideological struggle and, um, you know, ISIL is an expression of a movement within Islam. Um, which has uh, a narrow base but deep roots. And how do we deal with, you know, we could defeat them on the battlefield, but the ideas remain. So we, we've, you know, by and large, our approach to the fighting, even though we pay lip service to the information operations, ideological struggle, by and large, most of our resources are devoted to the military struggle. And uh, I, I mean, if you look at the amount, the number of people at state and DOD devoted to information operations campaign, not the tactical side, but you know, kind of on, on the strategic level. Again, it doesn't compare, and the resources devoted to that, doesn't compare to the battlefield campaign. Um, now, I, I mentioned that part of the problem is the way we think about war. Americans tend to focus on, 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 the, on, 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 on uh, you know, seeking results on the battlefield. But part of the problem is, as I mentioned, due to the operational environment, and I'll, let me discuss the second half of our failures, where I was talking about before about failures of self-understanding, there's also failures to understand our adversaries and the operational environment. And the operational environment is a military term that basically refers to all aspects of the battle space where you're fighting that affect military operations. It could be human terrain, it could be geography, it could be topography, it could be climate and weather um, and the nature of the enemy. So, and I'm going to focus on mainly the human dimension here. 
Now, the first thing I, I think it's important to understand is that the Middle East, to um, paraphrase Henry Kissinger's term, the Middle East is a non-Westphalian state system. He used the term pre-Westphalian. I prefer non-Westphalian. Um, and now let me just say, the United States during the Cold War also acted as a non-Westphalian state at certain times by virtue of our interventions around the world, covert action and the like. Uh, but by and large, through most of our post-war history since the uh, Cold War, I, I mean, uh, we've gone back and forth between being a, non, uh, a Westphalian and a non-Westphalian actor. The Middle East, though, is almost completely um, non-Westphalian in, in its workings, in that basically it's one big family and everybody considers everybody else's business their business. So we had in the 60s Nasser intervening against the monarchies. And you had the, the, the rivalry between the Nasserists and the Baathists, and you had the two Baathist states in Syria and Iraq constantly trying to undercut each other and scheming to undermine Lebanon um, and the Palestinians trying to undermine Jordan. And we see it even to today where you have the Gulfies inter intervening in Libya and in Syria. And now Iran is part of the mix. So this has been a, an established pattern in Middle Eastern politics for several decades now. Um, and the result, the consequence of it, is that there's almost always a bandwagoning effect. Whenever somebody wins a war, their enemies kind of collude to undermine their achievements. So as a result, rarely will military outcomes justify the blood and treasure invested. And I'll give you a, a few examples in a minute. Um, but the dynamic nature of the Middle East operational environment has tended to reinforce those elements intrinsic to war which Clausewitz wrote about, friction, uncertainty, and complexity that so often anywhere make victory elusive, but especially in the Middle East all the more so. And then you have in the Middle East, you have the power of nationalist and religious narratives that extol resistance and the knowledge that military assistance is almost always available from some quarter. So as a result, there's a universal tendency for defeated people not to accept defeat. That's normal. That's a normal human re reaction. But it's, it's strengthened by, by these ideological factors that I mentioned, um, nationalism, religion, and then the knowledge that there's almost always somebody in the neighborhood or a great power who's willing to give you arms to, 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 to fuel your fight. Um, so don't give up. And this, again, as a result, conflicts in the region tend to be um, more difficult to resolve than I think in other parts of the world. So what you get is that the benefits of even the most decisive military victories are often ephemeral, very short-lived. Wars have often yield, they often yield unintended consequences that are sometimes as vexing as the threats they averted. And then finally, wars have rarely resolved fundamental conflicts, more often leading to a new round of fighting. And I'll give you a few examples. Um, and I'm writing a paper now where I, I go into all these, and I've titled this chapter or this section, one damn thing after another, because it's, when you read it, it's, 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 you see, I'll give you a few examples, okay? The 67 Arab-Israeli war, I mean, you, that was a, a decisive Israeli victory, okay? But within a little more than a year, the Soviets had rearmed the Egyptians, the Egyptians launched the war of attrition, and then you had um, several years, six years later, or, or um, five years later, you had the 73 war. 73 war led to the quadrupling of oil prices, and as a result of that, Iraq was able to undergo a major military buildup, which when Iran experienced its Islamic revolution, they saw the op opportunity to invade and occupy the oil fields, leading to the eight-year Iran-Iraq war. That war ended with Iran, excuse me, Iraq 
in debt to the tune of, I think, about $85 billion to its Gulf neighbors. They looked at Kuwait on this border and saw a way to solve their economic problems. They also had to demobilize all their troops, and all these guys were now unemployed. So they go into Kuwait. That brings them to, into a collision with us then. Uh, we go in, we get them out of Kuwait, but we establish um, this containment regime, which contributes to the rise of anti-Americanism, sanctions fatigue, the rise of Al-Qaeda in, in, in Saudi Arabia because of our presence in the, in the, in the, in the land of the two Haramain, the Holy Land, you know, which for Muslims is Saudi Arabia primarily. And that leads to the rise of Al-Qaeda, 9-11, our return to Iraq. So I'll give you just, uh, and then you had also the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, which led to the rise of Hezbollah, which, which fought an 18-year war against Israel, caused Israel to withdraw in 2000. The Palestinians had already been talking about a second intifada if they didn't get their way in the negotiations. They, saw inspir they took inspiration from uh, the withdrawal. Um, then Ariel Sharon visits the Temple Mount. You have the intifada. Um, uh, the, the, the second intifada, um, the um, Hamas, when they took over Gaza, saw the Hezbollah model as an inspiration for them and uh, tried to uh, do the same with the Israelis, succeeded in getting the Israelis to withdraw in, I think, 2006. And then you have three wars uh, that, that, that followed that. They were kind of buoyed by their successes. So one thing really leads to another, and, and everything is kind of connected, as, as you see. So rarely are outcomes decisive or, or definitive. And there's some positive things. Let me just say, the 73 war also led to the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty. Um, and actually, uh, we handled the war in, in, a, in a, you know, Henry Kissinger handled the war in an exemplary way to, uh, to enable the diplomacy which led uh, to the, the peace treaties. So it's not, a, it's not a dismal picture. We did some very good things during this time. And the, the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty was really a game changer in terms of American stature in the region and changing the regional conflict dynamics. Okay, I mentioned before, when in, ter in terms of failures to understand our adversaries or operational environment, I mentioned before that not force, more force is not always better. And let me give you the examples. In 2001, when we invaded Afghanistan, and then 2003 in Iraq, we caused the rapid collapse of enemy resistance, not the defeat. We basically overwhelmed them, um, and they basically, they did take heavy losses, um, but then they went to ground um, and came back as insurgents. We didn't defeat them in detail, and they didn't consider themselves defeated. They considered, again, they were overwhelmed and not defeated. So there are times when actually more is not better that sometimes a long squeeze, such as what we're doing now in, in, in Iraq, although I would have liked to have seen us devote more resources to this effort, but sometimes a long, a long painful squeeze is actually more effective in defeating your enemy than, than causing their rapid collapse. The third point about our failure to understand the operational environment is that the success of US strategy in the region is often not up to us, but contingent on our partner's politics. And we saw this in Iraq. We stabilize the situation with the surge. General Petraeus says the surge creates space for the Iraqis to settle, you know, to, to kind of uh, reconcile themselves and to create a, a political solution. But again, in this part of the world, um, people will make agreements very often under duress. But if it's under duress and once the pressure is, is relieved, they'll revert to form. And we saw that with Maliki. Um, he did what, you know, we, he, he, we asked him to do when we were um, there in, when we had 165,000 people on the ground. But once it became clear that we were starting, we were drawing down and leaving, 
he started going back, he started going against his enemies. And as a result, um, especially after we withdrew, he targeted the Sunnis. In fact, it happened the day after, it started right after we finally left in 2011. And um, you have the return of Al-Qaeda in Iraq in the form of uh, Islamic State. So our, our strategies, we are dependent on our allies or our partners' politics. And our success is contingent on their politics. And their politics is dysfunctional. So again, that's another argument for why we should understand, we should have limited uh, and modest expectations as, 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 you know, in terms of what we can uh, accomplish in this part of the world. And part of the problem, though, when we went into Iraq and Afghanistan, as Americans, Americans always focus on things. You know, we, we, you know if, to fix the society, we, we um, help them uh, draft a, a modern constitution, create you know, uh, uh, effective uh, uh, institutions of governance, um, improve the economy, um, build a strong civil society. But again, as unfortunately we've seen in Washington in, in recent decades, we have the gold standard institutions, but our political culture is heading in the direction of polarization, which makes it very hard to get things done in Washington. So it doesn't matter if you have gold standard institutions and you can build them the nicest institutions, if the political cultures are not appropriate to those institutions, which is the problem in the Middle East. Again, I talked about the zero-sum winner-takes-all approach to politics. The political culture subverts the institutions every time. So that's the problem we face. And we haven't even acknowledged that, because if you look at all the studies that have come out in Washington about the way forward in the Middle East and how to fix the region's problems, they still focus on structural issues and not on the issue of political culture. But that's, you know, in a way it's kind of natural because I don't think you know, our political culture has changed in, in recent decades in ways that many of us don't understand, although I've seen some very good studies of, of, of why, you know, why the polarization in the United States and in Washington. Um, but the ability to engineer change or, or, or alter the political culture, even in our own country, is very limited, all the more so in a foreign country that we don't understand very well. So the part of the problem is, A, we're not, we're not addressing the right problems, but even if we were, I think we're just at the very beginning of trying to understand how to help them find the solution uh, to these problems. And I'm gonna, let me just quickly, I, I know I'm getting a little long, so, okay. Um, just a few other points I'll make then, and I'll, I'll wrap it up, with the Q&A is, is very important. Um, is often the, the best parts of these things. Terrorism. Our previous, our prior president was fond of saying that terrorism is not an existential threat. Which I agree, it's not, in, it's, not in, it's not an existential threat in the way that nuclear weapons are. That's, that's very clear. But we've seen th that in Europe and in this country, it has been profoundly corrosive. Um, and it's had an impact on politics in Europe and in this country, um, which, um, you know, are, are, are significant. So, I, you know, the, the thing is that we have to look at terrorism not just in terms of its physical effects, but its effects on politics and political culture. And I would argue in that way it has had a major impact on us and, um, you know, uh, would, should have justified a greater effort earlier on uh, to deal with. A few other things. We've emphasized working with, by, and through local partners in Syria and Iraq in order to achieve our goals, because we don't want to send 150,000 Americans on the ground in this part of the world, and we shouldn't. I don't want us to. Um, so as a result, our security force assistance efforts have been 
very a significant part of our of what we've been doing there, training and equip efforts, so to speak. I would argue, though, I, and I've, I've actually done some work on this. I've looked at a lot of the lessons learned literature, and we all all the lessons learned literature, and I've talked to also people who have done this, and 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 the impression I get is. What we try to do is create little U.S. militaries in this part of the world. And we don't recognize the fact that our, our military works with us because it's a, it reflects our culture. And the kind of militaries we're trying to create for our allies are not appropriate to the cultures in that part of the world, by and large. This is a, yours, Gay. Um, it's a good tune, though. Um, we, you know, we, we try to create little U.S. militaries. You know, in all the articles they say, our ally, what, what's missing in the Iraqi military is a strong non-commissioned officer corps. Well, the problem is, you know, that's one of our strengths. But in the Middle East, generals have to sign off on actions that in our military a lieutenant can sign off on. And there's no way an NCO is going to be given the authority in the, in the Iraqi military that, that they're given in the U.S. military. And we are trying to teach them tactics, techniques, and procedures that require decentralized execution, um, in, um, initiative. And again, in that part of the world, you're talking about kind of a patriarchal culture, top-down. It's, it's, just, it's just, except for small units, and maybe the, like the UAE has, I think, maybe succeeded in, a, in their Air Force and some of their Special Forces units. And in, you, you find centers of excellence throughout the region Every country has small units that are able to function much better than the, the mass military. But by and large, when you're talking about the mass military organizations, our model doesn't work with them. And yet we keep trying to um, export a model which I don't think is appropriate. So um, now the interesting thing is that Iraqis in the past, Egyptians in the past, found workarounds to their weaknesses. And we should work with them to find local solutions to these problems, rather than trying to impose um, foreign solutions that, that are just inappropriate. And then finally, in the Middle East, information operations, for many, at least for many of our adversaries, information operations are their decisive line of action. And military operations are very often conducted you know, to, okay, to, to achieve battlefield effects, but very often they're, they're, they're conducted even more so to create psychological and informational effects. And Hezbollah mastered this in their war against Israel, where Israel was losing only 25 soldiers a year in Lebanon. I, I think they probably lost more people, in more soldiers in car accidents and training accidents than Lebanon. But it created a psychological atmosphere in Israel where um, it caused them to withdraw. And likewise, you see Al-Qaeda, all the videos they took, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, you know, uh, of, of, you know, of them attacking our vehicles for propaganda purposes to get recruits as well as to demoralize us. Uh, we, again, I still think have a kind of a pro forma approach to information operations. Yeah, check the block, you know, we've got to, you know, sure, we're, we're doing that. But if you look at the resources, as I mentioned before, devoted to this, it's, it's just not, I think, where it should be. Um, you know, it was, it was said to me once by somebody who does this uh, for the military that, you know, our enemies bake in their I.O., whereas we sprinkle it on after. You know, and that's kind of our, that's been our approach for, I think, most of these last 16 years. I hope it's changing. So let me, so what do we do? What's to, what is to be done? I didn't say, how do we solve these problems? Because, again, um, first of all, I don't have, you know, there's a, there's a two-fold problem. First of all, 
we have to change our own strategic culture. And for the region's problems to be better, dealt, better managed, they have, their political culture has to change. I'm not sure I have the answer how we change our own political culture, never mind you know, part, help our friends in the Middle East to change their political culture, because again, we, um, by and large, when we've tried to do that, we've made a hash of it. Um, but I, I still think we need to be engaged in that task. Um, now, there's been a number of people who have written about um, America's uh, lack of uh, strategic competence. Um, there's actually a number of very good monographs uh, Andrew, Andrew Krepinevich and Barry Watts have written about this, restoring American strategic competence. They have some ideas on this. Uh, the, bo the bottom line is, this is something which, um, it's not just our military, but our, also our political class has to, um, there has to be a stock taking. But the problem is they don't go to war colleges, they don't get formal uh, uh, professional military education, and they come to office with their kind of common sense notions about the way the, the world works and about the Middle East which often, I think, as we've seen in the last 15, 16 years, have caused more damage than, than good in many ways. Um, so I, I don't have an answer to how do we change our strategic culture. But the beginning of wisdom is to understand we have a problem, and part of the problem is us, and the way we look at the world, the way our mental models, the way we think about warfare, the way we think about the Middle East, and go to town in trying to f understand how we could avoid those problems in the future. And, and, and find a better way uh, forward in terms of how we use the military instrument in that part of the world. Um, in terms of how we operate in the region, you know, I, I think we've, we've kind of figured out um, on an ad hoc basis how to operate in Iraq and Syria, eastern Syria, not western Syria has been a disaster. Our work with the, op the both the covert and overt um, efforts to support the opposition have been a disaster, but I think those were not serious efforts, I think is part of the problem. Um, Eastern Syria, we've done better with the, uh, the Syrian Kurds and PYD, um, but we need to institutionalize these ad hoc approaches that we've developed into a, a way of war that is part of our DNA, part of our military's DNA. Um, we also have to think about um, the, the struggle that we're engaged in now as a long-term struggle where we seek incremental advantage to advance our interests, while understanding that we're engaged in you know, long, open-ended conflicts that are likely to yield ambiguous outcomes, not decisive outcomes as we, as we prefer, and, and, and not decisive endpoints as we prefer. Um, so part of it, you know, I, I, always, I use the analogy of surfing. Or, or you know, if you're, in, if you're surfing on the ocean, there is never, there is an infinite amount of waves coming at you. There will always be waves, and you try to ride them, or you try to avoid them, or, you know, the analogy breaks down, you, you try to, you try to, uh, uh, contain them, uh, you know, that's where the analogy breaks down. But the point is, it just never ends. Um, and, and again, that's, that flies in the face of Americans, um, you know, I think most Americans' uh, way of thinking about overseas military intervention. We want our wars to be short, decisive, and discreet, and uh, ending in an American victory. Um, and the problem is, I'm not even sure the term victory really fits in what we're, you know, trying to accomplish in this part of the world, because there's, there is a large the most important part of what we're trying to accomplish is in the political domain. And as I mentioned before, you know, it has to do with you know, um, trying to find a way to uh, encourage uh, political cultural change. We also don't have a good feel of how, how and why 
extremist movements arise, how they uh, gain traction, and then they lose traction. Um, so that we could, you know, catalyze this process. You know, why is it that fascism or communism gained traction in the 20s and 30s and seemed to provide the answers to people? Um, and why is it that Islamism, um, after the defeat of 67, although I think it's more clear, you know, after nationalism became, uh, lost its uh, credibility, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, Islam is a solution. Uh, but I think there's, there's psychological dimensions, there's um, social dimensions, but I, I still don't think we have a very good understanding of, of why groups like IS and Al-Qaeda um, gain traction among a certain portion of the Muslim population and how it will lose um, eventually its appeal, just like other extreme uh, ideologies um, have lost their appeal. But let me just say, okay, Nazism was defeated um, you know, 60, 70 years ago, but you could see the iconography um, and many of the uh, themes still today on the internet. And they are animating some um, political movements around the world today. Even in Syria, you look in uh, Lebanon, the Syrian Social Nationalist Party has kind of a stylized swastika and they use the colors red, black, and white. So the iconography, I, I think I, I, Islamic State is brilliant when it comes to iconography and, 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 and symbols. And their symbols will be around perhaps for generations. Um, even if the movement is defeated. We have to recognize that fact. So I also mentioned, you know, implicit in what I said before, you need to have a tailored approach to security force assistance, which takes account of your partner's uh, culture. We have to be much bigger on information operations. In fact, I don't even like the term information operations because I'm not sure it really captures information warfare. I'm not sure it captures it because it's, it's um, and, and let me just say, it, it, it's, it's, it's something that requires a whole of society approach, not a whole of government approach. Um, and I'm not sure how you do that um, because, you, um, because you cannot, uh, in, in a democracy, the government cannot mobilize uh, civil society to achieve policy goals, although we can enable civil society to do what it does when it, it, um, and, and hopefully that will advance our, our interests. And then finally, my final comment is that you know, I, I really don't like saying this after, you know, the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, pursuing transformational goals. I don't want us to do this again, but there is no avoiding transformational agendas in the Middle East without occupation, without invasion, that's for sure. But the problems of the region, I think, like I said before, are rooted in the region's political culture to a great extent. And trying to help our partners there transform their zero-sum winner-takes-all approach to politics, which simply breeds and kind of, you know, once you've defeated the problem, it just kind of, uh, you know, causes it uh, to come about again. How, how, how do you stop that cycle? I think that's a challenge ahead. I don't have the answers to that. Um, I think that's actually a life's work. Um, but, but simply acknowledging that fact, acknowledging that a big part of the problem is political culture, which I think is, is not really part of the mainstream debate until now, is the first is the beginning of wisdom and the first step towards moving forward in this regard and and um, achieving a better outcome both for us and for the peoples of the region. So I'll conclude my comments there and I look forward to the discussion afterwards. So thank you very much. So who do I do? Okay, we'll start here and we'll we'll move across. Yes, sir. Question, sir. Um, 
we're not trying to establish empire, obviously, yeah. but you talk about trying to establish local armies in effect. What about the success on a long-term basis of the British in establishing armies to manage their widespread empire? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I don't know much about British history. Uh, um, there's actually a great article, though, by John Lynn um, called, uh, it's in his book on, um, I think, uh, it's a, on, on battle. I can't remember exactly the full title. But he has a chapter about the British approach in India with the sepoys. And he, he basically, and, and they created a regimental system that built on indigenous structures. And he, he holds that out as an excellent example of how the British adapted themselves to local culture, local um, social structures in order to uh, create successful fighting forces. And again, as Americans, we have a tendency to impose ourselves on others rather than to find ways to synthesize you know, the best of each and understanding there's limits as an outsider to what you can accomplish. So I will, I will just say that that article had a big impact on me. Um, there's probably, you've, you've sparked, you've lit a, you've lit a kind of a, a, a spark that I'm gonna actually look more there to see if there's other examples elsewhere. But um, I think in the past they were better than us, although I'll, I will tell you with my experience in dealing with British planners during my time at CENTCOM and the like, I think they've lost a lot of the feel. But they had, they, they had it. And, um, but of course their people lived in India. They, they, lived, they, they were born there and they lived there their whole life. And that, that also created, gave them advantages that, that we don't have as Americans, you know, by and large. I think we had here, and then we'll go, we'll go, okay. Yes, sir. Doug Burson, I'm with the Washington Free Beacon. Uh, thank you, Dr. Eisenstein. Just Mr. First of all, uh, I want to thank you for crediting me with uh, a great deal of intelligence for uh, presuming that I know the difference between pre-Westphalian and uh, post-Westphalian. <laughs> okay, actually, sorry about that. I think I'm nerdy enough to know that, but you know, I, if, if I really knew that when I was uh, 18, I would have gotten into a better college. I want to thank you for a very my, my knowledge of that is is Wikipedia deep, so I, you know, to be honest with you, so. I want to thank you. This, I want to say that the Westminster Institute is the the one think tank to go to if you're only going to one because you never get speakers quite like this. So I have two questions. One is, uh, I'm interested in what you mentioned toward the end of your lecture. How would we know when? How would we know if we get victory? You know, how would we know what the definition of victory looks like? Just hold that. Okay. Here's my question. Ten years ago, a little bit more than ten years ago, I was sitting in the Republican Palace in Baghdad, and I was a State Department official, and I was a public affairs guy, and my colleague sitting next to me, we were looking at the talking points every single day for several months, and they were always the same. And, and the talking point was, our strategy is working. Our strategy is working. The government of Iraq uh, is standing up a dem democratic apparatus uh, which is gathering the, the uh, various constituencies in Iraq, and it's creating a new democracy in Iraq. Okay, so here's my question. Remember 25 years ago, Francis Fukuyama published a, a book that became a bestseller. It's called The and End the, of History and the Last Man. And he proposed that the debate about you know, ideologies was over because democracy had won. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally won. There's, there's no dispute. Now, my question for you, sir, is, is, is Iraq today, according to its constitution as an Islamic state, is it a democracy 
in the ranks of the democracies of the West, or is it sliding toward the sectarian theocracies of its neighbor, Lupin? Okay, I'll give you, okay, a two-part two, two, two question. And actually, you gave me the answer to your question when you asked about when do we know um, when we've won or when, when we've achieved victory. I was actually you know, going to actually kind of, um, my response was going to be a paraphrase of Fukuyama's uh, title that there, there basically is no end to history. Um, that there is no ever, there is, look, I, you know, I, I went, I talked before about Americans, you, Americans have this binary approach to just, you know, there's war and then there's peace. Well, you know, the, I would just say there's more peaceful times and there's more conflict um, riven times. And there's never, you know, I, I'm not sure you ever, ever win, you know, because there's, in every generation, there's always evil and there's always extremism. And that's as long as we are human beings and, 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 and flawed and um, as we are, uh, there will always be extreme movements. As I mentioned before, you know, we still see the, the progeny of, of the Nazis still, um, you know, they still maintain a, you know, thank God they're, they're not, they don't control any state, but there's, you know, these, these ideologies still have a powerful pull on people and influence on people. And likewise, I think IS, um, without crediting it with, you know, it, it has a very narrow um, um, slice of support or support base among Muslims, but it's a very powerful, they're, they're very successful at intensively mobilizing the space because they have a, a global reach. Um, so, and, and I would say the, the effect of technology is, you know, you know it's, it's unforeseeable, you know, in the far future, but thus far has been to um, assist groups like this that have a very narrow appeal. If you have a narrow appeal, if you say, you know, and again, it depends where, where, where you, when you look at the polling data, and you always have to take the polling data with, you know, kind of a grain of salt. But in many Arab countries, um, um, their support is in the low single digits, although in some places it is much higher. Um, but by and large, it's in low single digits. In Europe, it's higher. But that's support. The people are actually willing to, to, to join them and to make, you know, to make hijra and, and, and to participate in jihad. It's, it's, it's much smaller. But if you, if you can intensively mine that narrow slice, that narrow support space on a global basis and bring them all to one place, you're able to put up a pretty uh, darn good fight as they've been doing. So anyhow, I'm not sure this really ever ends, is what I'm trying to say, but you go through periods, you know, we had a, a period of Cold War, um, we had a period in which the Cold War was over, and now we're, you know, geopolitics doesn't end. We're, we're now looking at the Russians as a potential geopolitical rival again. It's not the Cold War anymore, it's not communism versus capitalism, it's maybe more traditional, you know, great power geopolitics. Um, but this never ends. So the best you can do is try to um, keep the demons in the box as best you can. And to agree that right now you have a dominant political culture, and I, again, I want to be very careful, you know, when I talk about the, the political culture in the Middle East, it's not the same everywhere. You have regional and local variations, and there are countries that are, um, have a much more open, tolerant societies than others. But by and large, the dominant um, political culture in the places that have the problems are this, you know, either your boots on, some, on somebody else's neck or their boots on your neck. And that reproduces the problems. Now, in Iraq, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm tempted to give you, uh, in response to your question, is, is it a democracy? As David Petraeus said, it's Iraqracy, you know? It has kind of a uniquely Iraqi features. Um, you know, in, and this, is, this is, gets to the whole problem of political culture. 
Um, in Iraq, the, uh, the idea, the, you know, a lot of the Shiites, when, after the first um, election um, was held, that, you know, they said, well, you, you told us democracy is mar majority rule. We're the, we're, the, we're the majority, so we rule. You know, and the idea of that there's protections for minorities to, against the tyranny of the majority, as you know, we have in, in, in all uh, democracies or functioning democracies, was kind of, you know, you know don't, don't, don't detract from my, um, you know, victory. You know, don't, don't rain on my parade, was I, I think kind of like the, the, the approach that a lot of people took. So it is, it is a functioning democracy. They've had multiple elections. They do have cross-sectarian uh, alliances. Um, but the, the politics is, is, is somewhat uh, demagogic, and um, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, demagogues. There are people who rely on street muscle um, for their political power, and we're seeing now also with the, um, you know, you have these, you have armed elements. You know, the state does not have a monopoly of, of uh, authority over, over arms in Iraq today. And if that continues, and if the, as a result of ISIS, you now have the popular mobilization forces, you know, these militias, uh, many of which are pro-Iranian, not all of them, become incorporated into the armed forces and kind of, you know, kind of on the model of uh, the, the Revolutionary Guard, you know, this, people talk about the Hezbollah model and its application to Iraq and elsewhere. So it would be a combination of the Hezbollah model and kind of, you know, the IRGC in, 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 in Iran, where you have this parallel military structure um, which counterbalances the regular military and plays a political role. Uh, that, I think that would be a very bad outcome, and I think we'd continue to see Iran, excuse me, Iraq, uh, I think we would continue to see the institutions of uh, democracy er eroded there. But again, once the state loses its monopoly over arms, um, um, you know, and, and, and power comes through the barrel of a gun, that's, um, you're beginning on a slippery slope towards um, either chaos or it, it's certainly not a functioning democracy. And we see, we see in Lebanon that problem as well. Um, so there's elements of democracy, but it's, it's a mixed system as a result. So, yes, sir. I came from the Middle East. I was fortunate enough to be a U.S. diplomat in the Middle East for 25 years. Uh, I saw over the years the deterioration of the soft diplomacy in Western towards. I saw the abolishment of Voice of America, mm -hmm. the abolishment of U.S. information service, the non-existence of the Fulbright or, or uh, Ford Foundation for Middle Eastern countries. I saw the cool location in the embassy as preventing, isolating the American diplomatic uh, corps from the yeah. entire country. And why don't we take some of the action in that? Why don't we establish USIS? Why don't we establish libraries overseas? Yeah. And I think this is Bob's. I think this is Bob's question, really. Uh, this is Bob's. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, Bob, you want to? I mean, Bob is, has a lot more life experience in, in this than I do. I, I would just say, I, I think, I yeah, I I think this is. Um, I'll, I'll just say that um, we've, you know, uh, we did so at um, at great cost to ourselves. I know, that, Bob, do you have anything you want to answer, you want to add to this? Uh, I would say that my experience in government uh, has been to stop doing what works and double down what doesn't. That's another talk. That's another talk. Yeah, it is. I was in Lebanon during the war with Israel. I lost in 2006. And my God, we were completely isolated from any Lebanese. 
Yeah. It was a second embassy. Even then, with the Marines and embassy, mm. we never went out, including the ambassador. We couldn't mm. really get a message out mm. of the well, you know, and then you had what happened in, in Libya where you had a U.S. ambassador who was very proactive um, and unfortunately paid the, very, uh, the ultimate price for doing his job, um, being, being courageous, um, trying to meet um, with Libyans. And you see the, the bureaucratic response is to then to further hunker down and make it, you know, and, and you saw the political, the, the domestic politics don't help in that regard, the way you know, this became a domestic political issue, which then only just further reinforced the tendency to hunker down. So we're, we're in a bad place, I agree with you. And, but I, and I don't know, this is the most frustrating thing, you know, it's easy to sit in a think tank and say we should do A, B, and C, D. Well, we have you know, real fundamental problems in terms of our institutional cultures, which is what you're talking about, and, and our way of doing business. We have problems with our political culture, uh, which, are, which has been long in the making today, uh, going back to the uh, 70s and 80s with the increased polarization and, and Congress, uh, uh, their inability to get things done. And I don't have the answers. How do you, you know, because, so I, like I said, the, re the Middle East has its own political culture problems, but so do we, and we have to acknowledge that. And I don't have the answer to how we fix it. So if we can't even fix our own problems, it's kind of hard to give advice to other people when our own house needs to be put in order and, and we don't have the answer for how to do that. But again, like I said, the beginning of wisdom is recognizing the problem. You know. Good to see you. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a long time. It's good to see you. I had a number of reactions that I'll throw out. Please. Sure. Sure. The best binary in my mind is you think of conflict as I'm going to approach it by military or diplomatic means. Uh, yeah. um, the idea that, that, that they can magnify each other's effectiveness is, is, would be a new idea in our strategic culture. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's one or the other. Uh, and um, sort of elaborating on what you were just saying, self-knowledge, I think, begins with the fact that the left would just assume we lose the war. And if you make a mistake, they're going to make you pay the price politically at the domestic level. And, you know, for, for every error that you make, even if they have overwhelmingly authorized the war in advance, they will withdraw authorization while the troops they authorized are engaged. And, you know, that's something that you can't, pre you can't predict and you can't prevent. Um, if, um, if Bush had won, if George Bush had won the uh, Iraq war, all of the mistakes would have been forgotten by now. I mean, winning overcomes a whole lot of things. And we lost that. We lost because of, you know, undeniable military, diplomatic, and intelligence ineptitude. Uh, all three of those institutions severely let him down. The military needed to transition to counterterrorism long before they did, and they didn't know how. Mm. You know, probably because it's not capital intensive. Probably because you know it, 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 it involves a, a way of fighting that we haven't trained our troops to. I think what we've learned over the last uh, couple of conflicts is that um, the best way the best way to engage is to move the North German plane to the Middle East, because, because in, in, when we went in there in, 90, in 91 with that, with that uh, advantage, we were dynamite. 
you know, you have tanks and artillery and, and infantry all engaged and talking to each other and coordinating and so on. But when it's done, when that part's over, we're clueless, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, uh, and, and it was the same mistake we'd made in, this, in Vietnam. It was the exact same, and the solution was the same one. And we had failed to prepare for it the same way. Uh, you know? So, I mean, I, mean, I think our, our strategic culture requires a lot more honesty I'll just say, I mean, I, I'm glad, I mean, I, when you talked about Iraq, I, I agree this was a, a, an across-the-board failure that goes from, I'll have to say, it goes from the president to, go, to the lowest sergeant um, on, on uh, you know, on the ground who, you know, did things that uh, contributed to the emergence of a uh, of an insurgency. So this was an across-the-board failure. Our military was, and, 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 you know, our military was totally unprepared for the type of war um, that we had have to fight after the war, the war after the war, uh, after the fall of the regime. Um, we were totally uh, unprepared for um, the governance uh, challenges we faced there. Um, DOD at its senior levels, State Department at its senior levels uh, failed. So you're, it's an across-the-board failure. It was a national failure, and, and I agree with that. Um, there was a tendency at the time to say it's the neocons and it's the you know it's Bush. They 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 were they were you know they, they were part of that, but it was across the board. Um, so I'm sorry to say. So that's I, nothing else to add to, to what you have to say there. First of all, the best way to deal with refugees is preventing the emergence of a refugee problem, okay? So first of all, when people live in communities, there's established, there, there, are, there are established communities, there's infrastructure, there's chains of supply of food and, and electricity. So, and this was the big mistake, you know, I, I was, you know, my argument for supporting the Syrian opposition was not because they'll get rid of Assad, because my feeling was until we know what's gonna take his place, that should not actually be our goal. It's, it was important to test to see if there, we could help create a third way in Syria. I'll use the example of Syria because that's, that's really the, I think what you're talking about. You know, um, I wasn't, you know, I, I think it was important for us to try to create a third way because first of all, if there was to be a diplomatic solution, which I was skeptical of, because as I told you about the politics in the region, it's, you know, people will, will act under duress and then once, once the pressure is lifted, they re revert to form and the fighting starts again. And, and civil wars have a long history of, um, of, uh, of uh, uh, recidivism, you know, that there's often a second or third round. And we saw this in Lebanon, we saw this um, elsewhere um, in Iraq. Um, but you need to keep pressure on the regime for diplomacy to work, Apropos your comment, 
Um, you also needed to create a third way because if people didn't have a third way, they end up going to Jabhat al-Nusra and the Islamic State because those are the strong horses in, in bin Laden's you know, famous terms. Those are the guys who are fighting and dying and actually doing something. So, and, and we were, you know, and, and you know, our effort was, was kind of pathetic. And as a result, we, we contributed to the emergence in a way because of our failure to um, support a third way, which, which again, like I said, it may have failed. It may have, even if we had uh, effectively resourced it, the, the, the non-Salafist opposition is fragmented, it's, it's um, factionalized, uh, they don't work well together. So it may have been a disaster anyhow, okay? But at least we would have known that we, we did what we could have done. Um, and, and, and you would have prevented, hopefully, the, the, a, a refugee crisis on the, on the scope and scale that eventually emerged. There probably would have been some refugees, but maybe not on the scope and scale that we have now. So I would say, going forward, and I, I don't see this administration pursuing what you know, would be what I would, I'm going to recommend now. But you, you, we still have an interest, and it may be too late, to, create, to try to create a third way. Idlib is a disaster in northern, northwest Syria because it's really the extremists are, especially you know, the uh, local al-Qaeda um, affiliate is the dominant element there um, after the loss of Aleppo, which was, uh, was a, you know, a tremendous human tragedy. And for us, I think it was also a geopolitical uh, setback. Um, but, so you want to prevent more refugees from being created. So we, we should do what we can to arm people who are more or less aligned in, our, in, you know, in, in terms of our interests and who are able to govern in a way that's acceptable to the locals and who are not extremists. Again, it may be too late for that. Um, Turkey may not cooperate with those efforts, with those efforts now uh, also. Um, then, okay, so you're talking about a safe zone. Now, a safe zone has to be secured on the ground. So who's going to do that? Is it going to be the Turks? Is it going to be um, the Syrian government? Which is maybe something what uh, Donald Trump uh, agrees to. Maybe uh, the Syrian government uh, returns to areas that are now under rebel control as a part of a, uh, you know, an agreement. I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, in certain areas that just won't happen because the the uh, jihadists will fight at least, if, if not the uh, non-Salafist uh, opposition or the you know, quote-unquote moderate opposition. So I, I don't have an answer for you because the, the complexity of, what, of the situation on the ground now, but it would be desirable to create, a, a, if you could create a safe zone that was policed by locals, members of the opposition, um, who could keep those areas protected against the regime, against the, you know, the Al-Qaeda affiliates and ISIS, in an ideal world, that would be the, 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 the right option, but I, I'm just not sure that's possible right now. And let me just say, even if there is some kind of political agreement as a result of the Astana talks um, that were held recently with the Russians and the Turks and the Iranians and the Syrian, and the Syrian government, Assad's already getting rearmed by the Russians, okay? So the balance of power, unless the opposition is armed by the Gulfies or ourselves, the balance of power on the ground is gonna change in the course of the ceasefire. And eventually Assad's gonna say, you know what? I don't have to negotiate with these guys because now he doesn't have the manpower to take back the whole of the country, but maybe retake Idlib and parts, you know, control the entire west of the country, retake the areas near, near um, uh, Damascus that are controlled still by the opposition. So even if you want to see SFAR to work, you still have to arm the people on the ground. And I'm not sure this administration, you know, you know Donald Trump sees all the opposition as terrorists, which is in a way kind of, you know, or extremists. And, and that's, the, that's the Syrian regime's 
narrative also. So I, I, I don't know whether actually we should prepare for a new wave of, um, of uh, refugees or, or not. It depends on what policies the current administration takes. And, so, and it's too early to judge them. So I can only, you know, so let's, let's hope uh, for the best. But yeah, we had here one. I actually, oh. Warren Cubs, spent my time in Iraq and Afghanistan as well. Thank you very much for a very insightful and thought-provoking presentation, uh, laying out the extreme difficulties in trying to achieve whatever it is we're trying to achieve. My, my question then is, given what you have said, given the complexity and difficulty of uh, military, our military operations in, in foreign lands, why do it? Yeah. What are the circumstances under which you think American interests would be served by actually uh, engaging militarily in light of what you said? Yeah, yeah, no, basically, I mean, it, it goes back to the points I made in the, at the beginning, which is, you know, if you don't visit the Middle East, it'll visit you, and what happens in the region doesn't stay in the region. So I, I believe, you know, many, many prior presidents entered office trying to ignore the Middle East, and inevitably the Middle East draws them in. The challenge is to limit, look, we now have challenges in Eurasia uh, with the Russians, East Asia with the Chinese, the North Koreans. We have, our military is not sufficiently, um, uh, is not right-sized to deal with the emerging uh, geopolitical challenges we face. So the challenge is not to get sucked so deep into the Middle East that it prevents us from responding elsewhere in the world. Now look, I'm a Middle East area specialist by training. This is what I make me living on. And I'll tell you, please rebalance to Asia. Uh, because there, there is, first of all, we, we've done a lot of damage to, to this part of the world. Um, and, and so we could, it could afford to use some, a little less uh, attention. Um, but, but also, um, we can't afford to get sucked deep in a big way in the Middle East because of you know, Russia, China, North Korea. So that's why I advocated for a light footprint approach. Try to, don't look at it, don't try to, don't try to hit home runs, don't try to solve the region's problems, because we're not. History shows that. I gave you that litany of one war leads to the next, one damn thing after another. The point is, Rarely does the investment in blood and treasure yield results that are worth the investment in this part of the world. So, but we have vital interests there. So we need to find the right balance. So it's life footprint, enabling people whose life are on the, is on the line and who have to live there, again, with the likes of Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. And they have skin in the fight. So give, give them the wherewithal to prosecute that fight and seek incremental advantage. Don't, like I said, don't try to solve the problems, don't try to win big, but try to advance our interests. That's all. It's a modest, it's, it's really, a, it's a, it's a um, call for modest goals. Um, because again, you're not gonna, like I said, because of the state system, because everybody, ban, you know, bandwagons, the Iranians will, and the Syrians will bandwagon against you, or, it's, or the Russians are gonna help other people. You know, whatever, even, even the most decisive victories, Israel in 67 and us in 91, we're wasting assets, anyhow. So, have modest goals, but we have vital interest. Keep plotting away and trying to, uh, you know, have, play the long game there, as hard as that is culturally for us to do. 
So. Excellent point. Thank you very much. Uh, I just like to ask about the future of Russian advancement in the region. The future of Russian advancement in the region? Yeah, I mean, look, um, look, that was as we created a uh, military vacuum that the Russians filled. And now it's getting much more complicated for us because in Syria, we have to deal with the possibility of Russian aircraft and Russian, Russian surface-to-air missiles. They're playing now in, in Libya. They're doing stuff in Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, maybe next to the Gulf, I don't know. Um, Iraq, you know, they're also, you know, emerged, re-emerged as a, you know, you know, we're still the major arms supplier to the region, but they're, they're you know, kind of, um, you know, filling certain gaps in certain places. So it's, they've played a very weak hand very well, and I have a lot of respect. You know, they're, they're kind of low-tech compared to us. They're a generation behind us in their technology, but they're high concept. They're very good at the integration of political military actions. You look at, you see it in their cyber, you see it in their use of military, limited military force to achieve political goals. Russia's not trying for a big win in Syria at this point. It was enough simply to reverse the situation that the Assad regime was facing of, of, of imminent defeat. But they also left their allies hanging. You know, okay, you know, um, because, you know, they, they, they don't have the desire to put large numbers of people on the ground either. So we, we, there's a lot we can learn from them, although, God forbid, we should never use their you know, their tactics, I mean, scorched earth and, 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 and you know, and the like, that we, we can't do things that way and we shouldn't. But, um, you know, they, there's things to be learned from watching how they, how they operate. Okay, one last question. And I'll, I'll be around after if people have questions that... All right, yeah. thank you, uh, Ralph Groves. Uh, first, I want to say I agree with you that some conflicts never end uh, we'll never say never, but well, never say never. that okay. lasts a long time. Like the Zoroastrian concept yeah. of uh, cosmic duality between good and evil, it just goes on forever. Um, and now, now, uh, I'm going to focus on Iran for a moment just to introduce, uh, pertaining to uh, Sunni Islamist uh, extremists like Al-Qaeda, ISIL, and so on, uh, it would appear they uh, derive uh, some inspiration from um, Wahhabists and Saudis, <coughs> born of Saudi Arabia, yet uh, we are more favorable, we Americans are more favorable to Saudi Arabia than to Iran, even though Iran is fighting Sunni extremists like Al-Qaeda and ISIL and, yeah. uh, and Iran's uh, Shia variety of Islamism like Velayat uh, al-Fari uh, doesn't gain much traction and therefore is not as much of a threat to us as Salafism. So please share your opinion about Iran in the uh, counter-extremist uh, fight and yeah. more broadly what our policy should be towards Iran. Look, this, this gets back to the point I made about binary thinking. Like, you know, even our friends, our friends are prob a lot of our friends in this part of the world are problematic too, okay? So the, the Saudi, the Saudi uh, Dawah activities, um, you know, their, their missionary activities um, um, did create the, the lay the, um, or, or uh, laid the groundwork for the emergence of some of these groups, such as ISIS and and um, Al Qaeda, it, it it grew from that that soil, um, and too often, you know, in the past, 
They're, they've, they've, you know, my understanding is that the Saudis have changed dramatically on this, but they took a indulgent approach to these guys that send them out to fight in Afghanistan, let them, you know, let them fight in a jihad elsewhere. Um, they're good boys. They're, you know, they're good Muslims. But um, as long as they, you know, as long as they don't muck around domestically, and then in 2003, you know, with a series of bombings you had in in in, uh, in Jeddah and uh, I think Riyadh. Um, you know, it, it, and then they had, for a couple of years, they had a domestic insurgency that they were dealing with, that they had uh, kind of the blowback effect. So, look, I, our, our allies are not innocent either. But the bottom line is, Saudi Arabia is a status quo power. Iran is a revanchist or anti-status uh, quo power, okay? And our, our enemies in the region, um, Salafi jihadists like uh, Al-Qaeda and IS, and on, on the Sunni side, and uh, you know, Shiite uh, Islamic Republic of Iran are both trying to undermine the Arab state system. Our interest is preserving what's left of the Arab state system um, and, and the status quo. So that's why basically our interests are still aligned as, as problematic as the Saudis and the Qataris are. Um, our interests are still basically aligned with them and with the Egyptians in the way they are not with the um, Iranians. Um, and so, and I don't think the solution to fighting Sunni jihadism is by aligning with Shiite jihadism. That's, you know, the, 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 you know, especially now that some of our allies have recognized that um, as a result of the uh, blowback uh, that I mentioned before with the Saudis, they've seen religion, you know, they've gotten religion, so to speak. On, on this issue, and they are doing things now that they didn't do in the past in terms of arresting these people, trying to re-educate them. There's mixed results. Nobody's really, I'm not sure anybody's really had a great degree of, or you know, total success with those efforts. But I, I still think our interests are still aligned with our traditional allies in that part of the world, even though they're, they're problematic. And they are to some extent, you know, have been in the past and still are now to some extent part of the problem, but not, not in the way that the Iranians are, so. Great, please join me in welcoming.